I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. On today's show, we have Allie Seidenstein. Allie is a yoga teacher with nearly 20 years experience studying and teaching yoga. She was previously on the faculty at NYU in the biomolecular engineering program, where she remains a pre-medical advisor. She is all but dissertation for her PhD at the Bluestone Clinic at NYU, where her thesis research is focused on epigenetic, particular gene expression changes in response to PTSD. She is currently a fourth-year medical student pursuing orthopedic surgery and is the founder of the nonprofit Kids Who Care, holding over 20 years' experience in advocacy and leadership. Allie's insights from her personal experience and scientific research on yoga and trauma are unparalleled. She understands Eastern and Western healing modalities and holds both in esteem and, in my opinion, correct balance. In this interview, we discuss the clinical definition of PTSD and epigenetics, what can happen to our DNA after trauma, the importance of science in validating what we yoga practitioners know to be true, loops associated with pain and trauma and how yoga can unloop or reloop us, and what Ali sees happening in the future of science and yoga research. We also talk about where to go if you are a yoga practitioner who's experiencing pain and how yoga teachers can help bond with their students more quickly and meaningfully. I am so excited about this interview. Please welcome Ali Seidenstein to the Beyond Yoga podcast. So Ali, we met in India. Do you remember, was it 2007, 2008? I was going to ask you, I think seven or eight or something like that. And you were definitely deep in the yoga, like I was as well. And I have this image of you (laughs) at the Three Sisters. I have the same one. You were on your, your very long living in India. And, and now I find out like you're a PTSD epigenetic researcher. (laughs) (laughs) What was like the route from, yeah, your deep yoga practice into that area? Yeah. So we've joked about this before, but I kind of, I'm always involved in a lot of things. And I think one of the big roots for me is that I ran a nonprofit when I was... Well, so I started a nonprofit for abused and neglected children when I was 12. When you were 12 years old. Yeah, I know. I was in seventh grade and it was part of this... You know, We had to write a paper and do a small act of service and it just turned into a really big act of service. <laughs> and throughout like my adult life, that's morphed into a lot of forms of working with people that have come from really challenged and traumatic backgrounds. 
And I think I love the physical part of yoga, of course. And I love what it did for me, but I always had this like vision of having more integration and more like psychological and physiological impact. Mm-hmm. And when I was teaching yoga in New York City at Ashtanga Yoga in New York, I had this opportunity to like teach yoga for PTSD survivors in the Bronx and some other projects. And I think what came out of that was just like my real love for the deeper work of yoga and like the ways it can really heal things. And then while I was teaching yoga, I was teaching at NYU and I was doing my PhD and this opportunity came up to work with Dr. Weiserat. And he had this project and he's an incredible epigeneticist at NYU. And he had this project to work on epigenetics and PTSD. And it was just kind of perfect. I think PTSD kind of lends itself a more qualitative way of dealing with like trauma and stress. What's your definition of PTSD? So the definition we work with is based on the DSM-5, which is kind of the, the psychiatric and psychological qualifications to actually have a diagnosis. I can send you the chart that sort of has all the big qualifiers. The big thing is that there's been some sort of traumatic incident, whether you experienced it or somebody close has experienced it. And the repetitiveness of it in your like mind and body causes problems or, you know, psychological issues or ways of, you know, impacting your life. Yeah. 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 That's a great working definition. Mm Mm-hmm. And maybe you can explain for folks what is epigenetics because it's kind of a newer science, right? Yeah, I think it's one of those things that we've all sort of known intuitively is a thing, you know, that makes sense. But in terms of actually being studied like in a lab, it's new. And the basic idea, so I've written this out, which I've shared with you as part of yoga, like teacher trainings and traumas and articles. But basically, the gene that we all Sort of know about is I've explained it before is like the gene is like words in a book. So some things can change, like our actual genes, but usually they don't change. And epigenetics is kind of markers and molecules that help the expression of those genes. So the easiest way to think about that, I always explain it as like you can have a word or a sentence in a book, but the highlighting of specific words and how much that word is read is epigenetics. So a great example that's used a lot in terms of biology would be like cortisol. So we all have a gene that makes cortisol, which is one of the molecules associated with stress. But how much of that molecule is made is going to be different. And so epigenetics will look at how much of a specific gene is made into like a protein or a molecule. Yeah, whether that DNA is kind of turned on. Correct. Yeah, and off also. And off. That's important as well. Yeah. And what have you found through your studies? Yeah, so my actual research is using blood samples from people who have gone through different traumatic experiences. So in terms of PTSD and gathering like actual blood samples, war veterans is a pretty abundant available source just because they have blood samples before and after they go into combat. But I've also worked with data from 9-11 first responders 
and a couple of other what would be considered like more civilian traumas. And I think without getting into like the nitty gritty of like the actual genes, I think the exciting part of the research is that it's not even arguable whether or not there's a change. So consistently, there's a couple of hundred genes that are up and down regulated. But across all of the studies I've been looking at, which ends up being like 2,000 individuals, there's like eight or nine genes that are expressed differently before and after trauma. And they're using the own individual as the control. So they're actually using the person before or after the event, which kind of reduces other variables of just like what that you know, differences among people. So I think that's sort of the big exciting thing. And I think it also changes like knowing that, like it always helps scientifically. Like even if you and I know that traumatic experiences can really impact like our cells and our body, I think it's always nice to have science back that up and be like, yes, it does. And here's how, you know? Oh, absolutely. Because for a trauma survivor, being believed is one of the main influences in whether they're able to get through that trauma. So I think having science say, you know, what you're feeling is real. And then yeah. from our, our perspective also as yoga teachers, knowing so much, like you're saying in our bodies, right? Just like having such a knowledge in our bodies, but getting laughed at as kind of woohoo. <laughs> yeah. Now, now having that, that research out there, I mean, I've seen the way that people walk into yoga spaces differently. Yeah. Science is a way of validating what you know these things that we've known. Yeah, and I think I think we all need that. I think especially with trauma, it's a big risk when you've had things happen to you, or you've had negative experiences, or you're you know at the precipice of really wanting to change your life. It's helpful to have all the validity to be able to trust something because it takes a while for a real change to happen or lasting change to happen. It definitely does. Can you explain a little bit about maybe one or two of those eight or nine changes that you've seen post-trauma in the genetics or in what genes are being expressed? And Yeah. So there's been sort of two parts of my work. So one was kind of reviewing like every paper that's been done on trauma and genetics. And I think the interesting part of that is that when I did like the big meta-analysis kind of review of everything that's been done, the same genes kept coming up. And the genes that were coming up as being up or down regulated significantly were mostly as expected part of like the access that deals with like a stress, like a fight or flight response, like glucocorticoid receptors, which has to do with like cortisol. But I think... Those we can kind of like intuit or believe to be true. But I think one of the things for me that was so surprising, and they came up in the research analysis that I did also, was that there's also a lot of genes associated with healing and like cell proliferation or regrowth, which means there's a big impact on like inflammation, healing, a body's ability to like fight off everything from a cold to larger things. And genes that are associated with transport. So like the ability for your cell and body to like move molecules around, react to things were also altered. So in addition to those like expected changes in like the stress, flight or flight, adrenaline, cortisol that we're used to, there's also a lot of much more everyday kind of healing reaction genes as well. 
That makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. Like muscle repair, things like that. Yeah, that makes so much sense because the body is attending to the trauma. And we know that folks who have been through trauma, kids, they tend to, uh, their growth is stunted. Mm -hmm. And we know that when we're stressed, even, even if it's not a traumatic stress, that our bodies tend to get sick more easily. Our immune system feels down. I know (laughs) if I'm stressed that I'm going to get that cold. Absolutely. I think we've all had that. Like, you know, it's going to be a crazy month and on top of it, you get sick. Yeah. And just to see that at that level that like the cells, like maybe your cut isn't healing as fast. Exactly. That's really interesting. Can you relate that? Like what you've seen at this cellular level to what you saw when you were working with those trauma survivors, those veterans doing yoga. Does that come full circle for you? Yeah. You know, I think the big takeaway for me always, and this is something that's come up in the research that might turn into papers in the future. I think one thing that's important is that trauma survivors often have really interesting and very powerful tools to survive. And I think we often have this framework of it being all bad. But that's not always the case. Like the trauma is always bad, but the reaction sometimes has served purposes that can be beneficial. And I think when we think about somebody who's like really resilient, or we see people that have gone through horrible traumas, but they come out to be driven or CEOs or incredibly successful. But there's always a cost. And I think that sort of has been where the framework has shifted for me is that sometimes we will have a tendency in society to like elevate people who have been through traumas and manage to be resilient. And it's true. It's incredible. I mean, I think we all wish we had a little bit of that. But there's always a cost. And sometimes the cost you can't see, like it'll be stress response or it'll be healing or it'll be susceptibility to other physiological problems. And so I think what really came out of this for me is that if you've been through something that's traumatic, even if you can't tell what the trauma is directly, because some people can hide it very well, or they've managed to get survival techniques that are incredible, that everybody has some sort of cost even if it's just on a cellular level that can cause problems. And so I think I saw regardless what the outcome was of surviving the trauma for everybody from like the PTSD survivors and the vets I taught yoga to, to I've also taught yoga and meditation for kids that are re-entering their biological homes. No matter what you see on the outside, because we know there's a physiological cost, Having that like space on a mat or like a really safe space is always an incredible thing to witness, right? Somebody who's really resilient and really on it in some facets of their life might just get to relax in a safe place. Somebody else might notice that they haven't noticed they've taken a breath in like two years. And I think providing that space, regardless of what it looks like the person is going through, is always an incredible experience. Well, you've spoken to so many important things right there that I just want to point out. I mean, one is the body's brilliant, really brilliant Mm -hmm. ability to respond to uh, trauma, right? The traumatic event being something not right. And the body responds in such a brilliant way to protect the individual. Mm -hmm. And 
that that has a cost, right? If all energy is going to remanaging the way that we work to protect us, then something isn't receiving attention or energy. That's kind of the basic (laughs) layman way that I would understand it. And, and then you pointed out to, you know, that the person might look really resilient, right. Or might not even really know that something, that there's a cost there, but we should understand that something has happened to them and that we could have a sensitivity to that. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I think the other side of that is that there's always a benefit. I think sometimes I have this in my own life where you're so busy or things are going really well. It doesn't mean that you don't need to meditate or you don't need a safe space or you don't need to connect with yourself. Likewise, when there's a crisis or people are coming to terms with the traumas that they've been through or they really need help, it's so beneficial there as well. Yeah, don't save your practice just for when things aren't going well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> practice when things are okay. It'll be that much easier to practice. Yeah. Hard. <laughs> yeah. And the benefits will be there. The kind of work later. So such a good point. Sometimes we can use the practice like a pill. Yes. And I also think, I don't think we talked about this much. I'm finishing med school next year. And part of that, I've gotten really involved with clinical trials for yoga with like treatment for pain, chronic pain and back pain. And with trauma, we get similar to pain loops, which can kind of go hand in hand. Our bodies really have this ability to loop on things and pain and trauma and repetitive experiences. They also, to me, sometimes can kind of integrate as being part of the same thing or part of a similar experience. And I think yoga has a really... And meditation and some sort of mindfulness practice has a really incredible ability to create new loop and new patterns. Yes. Let's speak to that. I want to ask you one more question about epigenetics. Yeah. And I want to go back to that because the tendency to loop, to relive an experience is very strong in trauma survivors and mm-hmm. in pain. And I learned a lot about that from your course, which I want you to talk about in a minute. I just want to ask you one more question that I know a lot of people have about epigenetics, which is about if these gene expression changes, if we know if they can be passed down to the next generation. Yeah. Let me talk about that. So the short answer is they can. There was a couple of really incredible outcomes of papers on mice, of course, that dealt with a really stressed out, basically really stressed out female mother mice. And that, and also they did a really interesting one where they like program mice to be scared of certain music. And then like two generations later, the mice were still scared of the same relatively benign classical music. And I think the first foundational study for humans was they did an epigenetic study of people whose grandparents had been alive during the Great Depression and that the grandchildren's bodies stored fat differently because of the grandparents having gone through like starvation mode. So they have repeatedly shown that these epigenetic mechanisms can be passed down. And I think we all sort of can it like feel and intuit that? Like there are some things that we pick up behaviorally, like we might notice hand gestures from a sibling or a family member. But then there's also just ways that we are that are inexplicably similar to family members. 
So the short answer is yes. And if anybody is like needing an extra push to get out of their programmed ways, you know, you can think of next generation. So there's absolutely that possibility. And they've definitely shown that on a cellular level. Yeah, that's great to understand. It's just how deep and how passionate this stuff goes. Why we are the way that we are. (laughs) Absolutely. And yeah, and I think that that helps lead us exactly where you were going, Ellie, because I'd love to hear what we can do about that. (laughs) I was going to say that. I think the really amazing thing and potentially where some of this research will go if I have the time with residency is that the incident of the trauma that caught... like In my research, we are talking about some sort of event that's markable just based on how research has to go. And not everybody that goes through the trauma... So for example, like the war veterans that were all in combat together and then came back, not everybody had these lasting epigenetic changes just based on how different people integrate it, I suppose. And it it didn't happen right away. It's not like the trauma happened and then your epigenetics changed on the spot. The belief is really that it's the repetition that creates that. So it's that inability to get out of the repetitive memory. So that can be like people have dreams or they just can't stop thinking about it. And so when we see that, we see the value in repetition and, and how powerful repetition is. And I think you and I would agree that repetition and consistency is probably one of the most powerful acts in life, right? Like whatever you are used to doing, you continue doing. It's sort of the nature of being human. I think the amazing other side of that that's so valuable to everybody, you know, whether you're practicing a mindfulness practice or not, is that if you can create epigenetic changes from repetition of something that is absolutely awful, it means that we do have some power to make epigenetic changes on our own. There hasn't been, to my knowledge, a study that then just takes somebody who had epigenetic changes from something and then does some sort of practice and see if it changes. Although I think a lot of people would support the idea that that will eventually happen on a scientific level and it will also be true. If we can have a traumatic event go through the experience of repetition, have genetic change or epigenetic changes, then likewise, these mindfulness techniques changing your life in small ways on an everyday level also should have the same impact or a similar impact. Wow. That would be a very cool study. Yes. We're getting there. <laughs> yeah. And so like you said, you're sure that it would find that. Can you explain a little more about what practice is you know, a little bit about what you did with your course and the study of yoga and physiology and what you're finding. Yeah. So the course that Lars uh, talking about was one that I wrote when I was teaching at NYU and it's available on Coursera. It's called Engineering Health, Yoga and Physiology. And we will link it for sure. It's <laughs> So good. I feel like I'm back in my like high school <laughs> biology, remembering, <laughs> um, but then learning new things as well. Yeah. I think with that course, that was really, it sounds ridiculous, but that was really like a passion project for me. I was teaching genetics and molecular biology at NYU. And then I was also teaching yoga. And I really felt like the people teaching yoga that had this incredible message about healing 
needed the more scientific tools to be able to explain it. And I felt like the likewise, there was a lot of misinformation in the scientific world about what yoga was. So I kind of wanted to have a place where we would explain the scientific side. There's links to articles that have done rigorous research on some of the benefits of yoga and meditation. And then I also had professionals, clinical professionals. There's like two surgeons, Dr. Wieserat's in it. There's a physical therapist in it that talk about what they believe are the benefits of these practices. So that's a really exciting thing to sort of have out there. Your other question about like what the practice is or how it works, is that right? Yeah. I mean, maybe you can explain you did it so well in the course and I really can't promote that course enough. Um, <laughs> the, the links, the guest speakers, the articles and the links that you're making and really between, you know, what we see that yoga can do. And specifically you talk about yoga and mindfulness, right? Like we have a lot of kinds of yoga and you get into explaining a little bit about what has to be in place for new loops uh, to be formed, patterns to be formed. And maybe, because I think a lot of yoga practitioners and teachers will be listening, what are the elements that we're looking for to make that positive change? Yeah. Okay. I love that question. So with trauma and with pain, which are probably like two of the biggest areas that yoga has been clinically studied, it's all about changing up loops and setting new patterns. And I think we talk about in the course, it doesn't have to be yoga, right? There's physical limits to what people can do. And I know you've done a lot of work with what is the range of yoga. And I think the biggest thing, and I think you and I both have had this experience of teaching to different populations, is it's not really as much as we want to make it about the asana or the pose itself. It's really about First of all, having a safe, intentional space. Um, yoga studios are great at doing that. COVID and life often gets in the way. And people have had to make their own space, which I think is really valuable. But the really important thing about yoga that makes it different than other forms of like exercise is definitely the connection between your breath and the intention of your movement. In addition to, you know, ideally having a clear mind or a positive mind. But when you put these things together, you really have this unique healing experience that can kind of take this really mindless mode of living that I think we all get stuck in, like whether it's we're just doing in the dishes or we're talking on the phone or we're doing all of these things without really an awareness of what we're doing, how we're moving, what we're thinking. And so I think the course really highlights the intention behind something as simple as sitting and breathing or moving your body in an intentional way. And I know I've had the experience where I'm teaching people, and I know you you and I have talked about this, where someone will be like, wow, I don't even know if I've paid attention to my breath in years. Or I didn't know I couldn't move my leg like this. Or... They're surprised that when you say, like, put your left arm down, they can't figure out where down is. And I think yoga has this really incredible ability to bring our our minds back to our bodies, which are often really like kind of along for the ride of whatever's going on in our brains. And I think that's where we all get caught in a little bit of trouble. Like, our brains move very quickly, our minds have a lot of ideas and a lot of goals or a lot of thoughts or a lot of people. 
and are pulled in a lot of directions. And we don't really give ourselves like even 10 to 15 minutes of, I have to live in this body and I have to take care of it. And how am I really doing? I love how you said that the body's just like along for the ride. (laughs) I definitely feel like that some days. Yeah. And it's like, I heard it described this way. I thought it was great around, you know, so like around eating, you're already like taking the next bite. You haven't chewed the bite that's in your mouth, right? Yes. Just we're so far ahead and just taking that time, 10, 15 minutes a day to be in the body and like, see what's going on. Hey body. Yes, (laughs) exactly. I mean, I've had the experience too. Like it's not always bad, right? Like you have goals, people have families, they have so much that they have to do. It's amazing. Just because our mind is sometimes leading this really powerful movement doesn't make it bad. And I feel like that's really important because I think sometimes people think they need this whole overhaul. And sometimes it's just as simple as like, no, you just need a five to 20 minutes of something else, something rejuvenating. I've had people in med school like do five minute meditations or breathing, and nobody can believe it's five minutes. You know, nobody can believe the benefit to just that pause. But what about folks who feel like it feels like hours for them, or coming into the body feels really unsafe and scary? I think I'll ask you the same question because I think we've all had different experiences of what to do in that case. And I think it depends on the person. If it really is scary, as in unsafe for the person or they're dealing with traumas that are really haunting, I would probably say like, first of all, they have to define what a comfortable space is then for them. I've had people tell me like, they're not going to change their clothes. They're not going to take their shoes off. You know, all of these things, which might seem small to somebody on the outside, but are a really big deal. And... It can be something as simple as somebody will, you know, they'll sit on their mat for five minutes, but they won't close their eyes. But I think what we've all noticed in life is that it's only a certain amount of time until you do feel safe, right? We've seen this with animals, children, people, you know, they might need time to warm up, they might need adjustments made, but they do get there, right? So I think that's really something we need to switch the framework on is like not everybody has to go to an hour and a half yoga class or can. If somebody doesn't feel safe, they can put music on. If they don't want to participate in the meditation, but they want to be there, as long as they're respectful for this space, I feel like we have to, as teachers and then also as practitioners, I think we just have to get much more sensitive and much more willing to work within different people's restrictions as long as it's not damaging for anybody else. Nellie, that's so good. Thank you for those tips because I think sometimes teachers may not realize that that student that doesn't want to take their shoes off, it's like, it's not about you, right? They're not like rebelling against you, but that's what's making them feel comfortable in this moment. And if that's what brings them to class, so, you know, we wipe the mat after, we wipe it after anyway, right? Totally. They have shoe covers, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And if that's the small thing that we can do so that folks can show up and get all those great benefits, then let's do it, right? Absolutely. And I think also we've all had the experience too where people have different responses to trauma, right? Somebody might have a response where they're scared and they're pumped to be there and they just love it off the bat. Someone else might have had a response where they've had to be guarded their whole life. 
And if somebody creates a safe space within what are reasonable requests, I think that that sometimes forms this bond that people don't realize how much benefit can come from it. And I think it's really important to do that. Yeah. Just by saying, yeah, yeah, I'm open to you. I'm open to what your ideas are, what you're feeling, what you're wanting. Yeah. And from there you can, yeah, like you said, you can have a quicker and deeper bond. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any other practices that you've brought into your teaching style specifically when working in traumatized populations? I feel like one of the things, and I think the benefit to teaching for a long time to different populations, and I know you've spoken about this, is you get pretty good at being a little more flexible. You and I have practiced a traditional form of Ashtanga yoga for ourselves for a long time, but I think there's a lot of value in understanding that that is not for everybody at all times in their life. And I think one of the things that I've really come out of all of it with, and also medicine and just the way life is often is that you have to have a little bit of humor. People are going through a lot that we are often unaware of. I think humor helps. And I think as teachers or people that are holding the space, I think it's really important to allow everyone to be a little bit more comfortable with like quiet, uncomfortable silences. There doesn't have to be answers. There doesn't have to be resolution. We don't need to have someone come to a yoga class and then say they felt the best ever, they might feel awful. And I think being okay with all of the in-between is something that's really important for everybody. It's kind of like the thing that comes up for me the most, right? And people need to hear that that's okay. Like we all have good days. We all have bad days. We all have days that are just regular, pretty good days. And I don't think that the yoga or mindfulness practice that you're doing is any different. And it's one of the hardest things I think as teachers is that we want everyone to come out of every class being like, that was the most amazing experience. And that's not always the case. And people's emotions don't always have to do with us (laughs) Um, as much as we want them to when they're good, you know? I'm trying not to scream. It's like, yes, yes, everything you're saying. (laughs) So much there. Yeah. I think holding space for whatever people are going through, especially with trauma, is kind of your job when you're dealing with that. If there's things that they need that are within reason and you can work with, I think you have to give it. If they're really happy and it was the best thing ever, I think you have to let them have it. If it's the worst thing ever, I think you have to sit with them. And I think that's really what comes of all of it. Because bringing it back to epigenetics, this all takes so much time. I wish... There is like one quick answer for everything that happens in life, but there really rarely is. And so when you're talking about using this scientific background to allow people the space to undo these patterns that have been formed by absolute repetition in mostly a negative way, you're talking about something that's going to take a while in a positive way. And that means on a daily basis, you have to hold space for whatever's going to come up, you know? Yeah, because it's not going to be linear or it might not look like a linear process. We're doing a little better every day. And I think, and this is such an important point, if we can stop over-promising what yoga can do, and especially in one class, and stop making it about us, Mm -hmm. 
but um, allow for all kinds of responses and humanness and humor, which you, um, you're great at adding humor. <laughs> you have to. This is, you know, life is insane. <laughs> you always. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> It gets all crazy. It's all crazy. Like, can't forget that part. Yeah, let's like lighten it and allow for all the sticky, strange humanness. Yeah, in the space, and if we can stop predicting, which is interesting because you're you're a scientist and you're on your way to becoming a, a doctor and a PhD, and like predictions is or like hypotheses probably part of what you do but what's amazing for me is to go in and be curious and be always in that beginner mindset oh yeah I feel like I do this research because the world needs it and it's always so funny but like I always say which is probably horrible and I apologize to any scientists out there that I'm offending but I don't feel like I need it I feel like I know that if my mind is uncontrollably racing over something that's bad I'm gonna feel awful I know that if I'm stressed, I'm going to get sick. And I know that if I'm doing things for myself, I'm going to feel good. I love science and research and I love putting things out there that help other things. Like maybe one day yoga will be covered by health insurance. Like I'm driven by all of those possibilities. But I feel like I know that it's good, you know? And I feel like the other thing is like there's this sort of joke in yoga. It's certainly in medicine that like if something really good happens, it's the doctor or it's the yoga teacher. But if something really bad happens, it's something else. And I think the important thing we have to hold is that it's really neither, right? It's really not either or. It's really that place where healing takes time and it is all over the place mostly. Yeah, absolutely. And there are a lot of factors that come into our healing. I mean, if we're going to yoga class once a week or twice a week or even once a day, that's only a a sliver of what's going on in our lives. Yeah. I maybe want to share some other things, Allie, doesn't have to be from your research or just maybe from your life experience about nutrition or other therapeutic or healing modalities that that you've experienced or you've shared with people that could also be helpful. I would love to. So the first thing I will say about that, and that kind of goes with the same idea of, you know, not everybody needs or can do an hour and a half yoga class. And I think I myself need to listen to myself saying this. Um, I don't think we should undervalue what like five minutes can do. And I think there's a real human condition where we start to be like, if I can't get to the gym, I'm not going to work out. Or if I can't do the whole yoga class, I'm not going to do any. And I, I know that I've had the experience in a busy day, in a busy life, in a busy rotation where I'm like, wow, like five minutes is amazing. And I just like would shout that to everyone I know, like everybody has five minutes. You can find five minutes. I know it. Like you can pretend that you're going to the bathroom for five minutes, you know, (laughs) like there's five minutes and there's meditations everywhere, like good ones, bad ones, find one for you. We have so much access now. The other thing is, yeah, like there's a lot of things that we can do for our health. You know, I tell patients all the time, like, taking walk, sitting outside, sitting quietly with people you love. All of those things can be like, as soon as we shift the perspective that we live in these bodies and they need attention, they're not just here to like, you know, shovel our minds around, but like we actually have to care for our bodies that can look a lot of ways. But I think we have to get in our brains that that's part of it. Nutrition is a really big part. Obviously in medicine, it's something I'm doing every day. 
talking to people and patients about what can they do? What can they cut back on? I myself, I've been vegetarian my whole life. So, you know, I take with that a lot of components, so like from a health perspective, which is how it started in my family, but of course, like an ethical perspective for me personally. But I think more value needs to be put on just the fact that like you're living in a body that you need to care for. And whatever that is for you, I think it can have a really big impact. I recently did like a family medicine rotation and part of it, I made this huge handout of like healthier options to eat at like every fast food restaurant. Because I think we have to remember that we always have a choice. There's always something we can do for our bodies that are a little bit better. My big advice from like a nutrition thing is just, do you recognize what the ingredients are? Like, are they words to you? Because I think packaged foods and a lot of like preservatives and things are really bad. But I think for everybody, food and what is good to eat means something different, which we have to be really mindful and aware of. I don't think there's like one diet that works for everybody, but I think everybody in every culture can agree that like your food should be nourishment. There should be some consciousness to it. There should be like belief behind it. Not every day, not every meal, but as a general rule, that's what I would say. That and water. Everybody needs to drink more water. (laughs) Yeah. And being outside and... Yeah, exactly. I was always a really big like nature person and hikes and everything. Training in a hospital, I have a new appreciation for like five minutes of sunshine. So I think like that's something I've been talking about a lot is that the amount of time you have to give everything doesn't have to be so big. And usually there's a way to figure it out. Like somebody might not be able to make the time daily for yoga classes, but they might have time for a health coach. Somebody else might have goals that are able to be attained if they're like five minutes outside, five minutes for me, five minutes meditation. If not, and you're an advanced practitioner that has time, that's also amazing. But I think shifting that idea to like, we have to take care of our bodies. We just have to. Yeah. And we have to take care of each other as well. And you sent me something, I think today or yesterday that I didn't know you were a part of, which is more about, can you tell me you're, you're on the advisory committee? <laughs> yeah. So I'm on the advisory board, like the scientific advisory board for Unovis which is essentially an investment fund for more environmentally friendly approaches and investments to what started with food, but has been in other areas. So they've backed everything from like vegan cheeses to like pollution initiatives and things like that. So one of the big things is like stem cell meat, which is a really interesting concept that I'm sure people have seen in the news recently. I have. Yeah. I think the amazing thing about the company is just it's shifting their perspective and their focus to like what's good for the next generation as well. And I think that that looks different for everybody. Stem cell meat is a very controversial topic. It will continue to be. But I think the thing I love about Unovis is that the choices we make, like business choices with a more multi-generational perspective... And I think that that's really important, right? We have to take care of ourselves. We definitely have to take care of the planet. We have to keep future generations in mind. It's a lot. It's a lot on our plate. Yeah, that's really cool that you're a part of that, Allie. And I know you make a great advisor. (laughs) I try. (laughs) (laughs) What else, as we start to wrap up, what else is exciting for you right now? What's on the horizon? What are you interested in? Gosh, 
So I'm going into, funny enough, I'm going into surgery after all this talk about, not, not for myself, but to do it, all this talk about healing. And I think what's exciting, I think when people hear that, it's shocking because they're like, I thought you believe in yoga. And my favorite part about that is there's a place for everything, I think. And I always like to, I like to sort of be the person that reinstates that to everybody that can hear it. I'm the first one to tell like a patient, you know, you need to stretch, you need to walk, you need to de-stress, you need mindfulness. And knowing the difference between that and somebody who needs surgery, for example. Two of the other projects I'm working on right now, one is yoga for back pain, like chronic back pain in adults, which I've had, and it's an awful experience. And one is a study for scoliosis in teenagers with yoga. And so I'm so excited to be at the place to which, you know, coming back to the course, like I'm so excited to be at the place to sort of scream out to everybody. Like it really is both. You have to take care of your family. You have to nurture yourself. You have to have financial stability and income, but like you also have to have your wellness. There's a place for Western medicine. There's a place for mindfulness. You know, this idea that there's this either or with everything we're doing, and there's one answer. I don't agree with that. I think there really is a place for everything. My fear always is that all of the science always or all of like the medicine and like the you know intensity of how we live our lives kind of overpowers the importance of the basics. You know, like sometimes I feel like we forgot about the basics. Like we need to drink water and we need to eat food that is food and we need to exercise and we need to be kind to ourselves and to each other and we need to quiet our minds and there's just no escaping that. There's nothing that's going to cover that, you know? Yeah, it's reminding me of one of the doctors that you had on the in the course who's saying, you know, people come in and they're like, "What do you mean I don't need surgery?" Yeah. <laughs> like they're wanting to hear that they need surgery because for whatever reason, like sometimes we don't want to try the simple things first or of course the pain with back pain, my husband goes through that. Mm-hmm. It's so severe that it's hard to imagine that it could be a loop that has nothing even structurally to do but might need some other changes. Yeah. I think too, and I see it all the time, someone doesn't need surgery, right? And that doesn't mean that there isn't something structurally wrong, right? I think sometimes patients interpret, you know, there's not something we can do surgically or there's not a medication for this. They interpret that as like an insult, you know, that means that their pain isn't real or their struggle isn't real. And that's not the case at all. And I wish, I wish everybody would hear that. The pain is real. Like I've been through it. And sometimes the pain is an accident. And sometimes the pain is a million things all piled up. And sometimes these answers like meditation, mindfulness, a new approach to life, it takes a long time, but it took a long time for the problem to occur as well. And I think that that's often the case for trauma survivors. You know, there isn't one thing that's going to fix it. It's a lot of little things over time. And the experiences are real. Like pain is real. Trauma is real. Nightmares are real. Stress is real. And the body is the display of how real that is, right? These experiences we've had repetitively through life, you see it. They catch up with you, right? And I feel like not needing... like I think it was Dr. Andrew who said that in the, the course. But I think acknowledging that something can be so real and then offering tools and offering the support and offering the space as somebody works through that is really powerful. Yes, absolutely. Not It's not being dismissive of Correct. the real pain. 
I saw my husband in that horrible pain for, I don't know, it was about eight months before it kind of went away as quickly as it came. Yeah. <laughs> very strange. I mean, back pain, I'd be very interested to hear more about your study, especially around yoga and back pain, because he was definitely given some different advice around that. So uh, be interesting to to hear your. We can findings. have a whole long conversation. Yeah, I think <laughs> I will say this: yoga means many things, and I know you've spoken to this and written about this in regards to like pain and injury. I'm always saying like, if you're in real pain, like don't just walk into a regular anything yoga class. Things that people often don't think are intense actually are intense physically, and I think that there has to be a lot of awareness of like what is safe for everybody, right? Yeah. And yoga teachers in general may need a little more training Mm -hmm. if they're going to serve those folks or me me to be able to say, this might not be the right class for you because I don't really have that knowledge yet, but I can refer you to someone who specializes in that. Yeah. And I I love that idea. I love that idea of like, yoga is really powerful. And I think that with that takes like a, a lot of responsibility and like with anything... I think the smartest, best people are always the first one to be like, I'm not sure. And I will definitely find out. And that goes for, you know, everything. Oh, such a good lesson, Allie. I could talk to you forever. I know, we'll do it so again. So <laughs> uh, we should do it again. And, and we should do it more anyway, off, offline, off the record. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you? Oh, gosh. No, I don't. I think we covered all of it. I'll make resources more available to you to anyone that's really interested in this. I think the big message I'd like to say and the exciting thing to me, which I think I said earlier about epigenetics in general, is that life experiences are what create it. So life experiences can continue to change it. And I think the exciting thing about it is that it's not stagnant, right? And I think that that's what we need to hear and focus on is that it got there and it can unget there, you know? Yes. There's always time to change. Yes. Yeah. It's never too late. <laughs> never <laughs> too late. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will we will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land.